Combat and Kissing Wolverine. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It's a podcast where a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before ever in his life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes a second comedian. This one is a Marvel expert. This one was even taught to read using Marvel comics. Together, it's the yin and the yang of the Marvel experience. Hello and welcome to the episode I said I'd never do. It's X-Men The Last Stand, the worst Marvel movie I've ever seen. I'm uh, one of your hosts. I'm Rob Haldon. I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, and I'm the Marvel expert on this show. And I'm joined as ever by the man that makes it all possible and for those of you keeping track at home the man who chose to do this movie and forced it to happen it's will preston i think it's called revenge rob you're always mean <laughs> to me about my ignorance and i thought you know what i i'm going to drag you kicking and screaming through essentially what is an well let's just say there's a lot of memories of this film and i'm not going to say whether they're good or bad i don't know if we've ever had a mailbox, a mailbag from our listeners as packed with letters like this. Yeah. It's... Uh, it is just an, an, in, an incredible reaction from the uh, the Versaverse, the MVM Versaverse out there. Um, coming up on the show, we go behind the scenes on the messy and difficult making of maybe the worst Marvel movie of all time. We go behind the page and look at what could have been as we examine the Dark Phoenix saga, the greatest Marvel comic story ever told that they sort of don't bother to do in this movie. (laughs) Um, We'll learn just how powerful and dangerous the Phoenix is. Mm. We'll learn about the passion between Jean Grey and Wolverine. We'll find out about the deadly mutant massacre of the Morlocks. We'll learn about Madrox the Multiple Man, one of the most interesting mutants in the history of Marvel Comics. How the X-Men's costumes have changed over the years and we'll discover just exactly which nepo baby has been paying for the x-men all these darn years that's all still to come on this podcast plus very special announcement about our next episode which is something it's an we've never done anything like this episode before at the end of the show we'll let you know it's something we've never attempted to do before which is the very first time we're going to give it a go that's what we're doing find out um, as we proceed through this goddamn episode and Will I knew going in I wasn't going to enjoy this and I don't just mean the movie yeah I hate having to learn more and talk about the phoenix because the phoenix <laughs> it is the greatest the, the original is the greatest story of all time yeah. in marvel probably arguably critics say but there have been so many updates changes and retcons to this story to keep the phoenix coming back to tidy up what actually happened with jean gray and some of it contradicts the rest of it I hate it. I hate having to go into the goddamn Phoenix like this. Like when we did an anime, we did we we did two 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 odd years ago. Me and Will did an exhaustive deep dive into the X Men animated series <laughs> when they tackled the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix. Yeah, and that's a pleasant pleasant experience because I just got to focus on the classic original nineteen seventies comics. 
I hated doing this, Will. <laughs> God damn you, I hated doing this. Oh, boy. Hey, I, 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 I'll let you know my experience in a bit. What happened is a hole opened up in the schedule. Disney have some of the shows at Disney. and We, we allot time in, the, in a schedule because they're all the... Um, the Disney, the Disney Plus Marvel shows that come out. And we are like timing our schedule so that we can do something that ties into that. So we're bang up to date, trying to be in the zeitgeist. So like halfway through the Loki series, we're going to be able to release a Loki episode that'll hopefully pick apart what's going on in, in, that, in that. We've been able to do it in the past with lots of the TV shows. And Marvel will, will announce something and then cancel it. Really, like, a couple of months beforehand. I think we lost Echo this year. Echo's not happening Yeah, it's being pushed back. So we've had to move things around to plug that gap in our schedule, and it just meant that a knock-on effect, suddenly a gap opens up. And I foolishly said to Will, <laughs> after multiple years of me saying, I will, there's no, like, I'll never, I never want to watch that movie again. I never want to have to deal with the Phoenix again. We did it properly. We're done. And I foolishly said to Will, off, off, like, in a throwaway comment, why don't you just pick the next movie? There's a list of stuff we haven't done yet. <laughs> There's a list of stuff that's kind of booked in for this year and next year. Pick something. And uh, you chose to stab me in the back. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. That's what we're doing. It's the X-Men. Uh, it's the X-Men 3. X-Men 3 Last Stand. X-Men Last Stand. It's the last stand of the X-Men. It's a movie that nearly tanks a franchise. <laughs> so, so bad that they, they, never, they never return to this. They never return to this continuity. Like, nope, there's nope. a movie down the line that, that fi- brings all these characters back, fixes all the mistakes that happen in this movie. It, it fixes the continuity and makes sure that they go, no, we're never going back to the adult X-Men. We're just going to deal in the past with the X-Babies, the, the, the teen X-Men. X-Men babies. <laughs> because Last Stand <laughs> sucks so much, no one wants it again. It's been foggy in my part of the world recently. Sometimes the fog <laughs> prevents you from being able to see uh, what's right in front of your face. It obscures all vision and sight. But there's nothing with a denser fog, a heavier mist. There's no realm that has less for you to see and look at and know about than the murky, misty mind of a muggle. The mind of Will Preston, a man who knows nothing about anything we're talking about. There's a reason why Um, I chose this film, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) The misty, murky, pea soup mind. Bloody hell. Of Will Preston. Uh, Let's dive into into it then, Will. The yin and the yang of the Marvel experience, which is that I know a lot and you don't. Um, But in a nice, friendly way. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's a nice way of saying (laughs) it. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Um, so it's 2006, right? That's the year of this movie, 2006. Yes. It's pre-MCU, mm-hmm. but we have had Batman Begins. Yeah. We have yet to have The Dark Knight, mm. which is the real first, that's the first uh, billion dollar. That's the first one that kind of opens things up to, to, a, to a massive degree. We have, of course, had the, um, the first couple of X-Men movies. We have, of course, had the first couple of Spider-Man movies. Did you see this movie? Like, what? Where were you? And I know that when we talk about like the MCU, you often say things like, "I was all about Batman and only about Batman." Yeah. Did that exi- did that? Did that apply to things like Spider-Man movies and the X-Men movies? I 
I, 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 I mean, I think by the time this came out, I think I might have seen X Men Two already on DVD, and I really, really enjoyed it. So I was coming around more to the X Men. I think when I heard about this, I was like, "Oh wow, they've got all these people. They've got so many different like superheroes." Obviously, because it's all part of X Men. Obviously, it's a group thing, but there's so many of them. And I saw they've got some interesting cameos. I was like, "Oh hello, who they got that person playing that? They're doing that." And I've heard I heard people talk about like the Phoenix before and 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 uh, saying like oh it's an important thing and i was like oh they're gonna do something big this is gonna be the big third final film it's gonna be yeah. all this and i was thinking oh wow i gotta see that i gotta see that i want to see how that all, that all uh, comes together and did you go and see it at the cinema no i didn't uh <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i'm i'm very bad at this point in time in the nor in the noughties early, early to mid noughties i'm very bad at going to the cinema i barely went to the cinema and i really regret it but um I, I think mid-noughties, I didn't have a lot of money. And so it was a case of, oh, uh, I might as well wait until it comes out on DVD or something like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah I remember seeing it on DVD. And I I enjoyed it. Wow. I know. I, really? I, I, I'm not saying it's better than the first two films. At the time, this was the only superhero film that had such a big... Like everything coming together at the end, this big yeah. loads of superheroes fighting, and there were there were some people I really want to see, like Beast. Uh, I think Kelsey Grammer as Beast was what really sold me, and a lot of people will say the same thing. And I, I okay, I you know I watched it, and it was just like, oh, good. There's a lot of explosions. There's Golden Gate Bridge moving. There's this and that, and some really you know like, oh my god, they're trying to quote unquote cure cure uh, mutants of, of this stuff so you got this nice little undercurrent subtext of you know conversion therapy and i remember thinking oh no this is this is good this is good this is really good it's interesting this is the this is the first superhero movie that has a really big set piece yes and that has a really and has a big the first one to have a group fight of course yeah if you think of the the first couple of spider-man movies they don't really have a like the set pieces. The tr- there's the train fight with Doc Ark, yeah, right. And there's I can't think of there being a big one. I mean, there's the burning building maybe in the first Spider-Man movie, but there isn't. And, and again, in the other X-Men movies, there there aren't any of these big set piece scenes. I don't think things that happen on a slightly smaller scale. I mean, I mean, the last film, uh, X Men, yeah, X Men Two, you did have uh, the whole thing inside that lab, but it wasn't a big set piece. It was just you know separate things happening in a complex oh, it's, yeah yes yeah i mean maybe there's the big damn busting i think maybe that's, maybe yeah. that's it but that feels less actiony more just cgi based that that's that know. feels like more like the conclusion of the scene rather than the, the whole scene itself sure. which of course is this whole fight scene but yeah this was what sold it for me and i think it's easy to look back on this uh with derision but you've got to remember at the time if you were like me and you didn't know about uh, how much they were ruining the the, the Phoenix storyline sure. and you know everything else, you just wanted to see a load of superpowered people fighting against each other with an array of different powers. And for its time, for that time, it's it, I think it did its job. I don't believe that's what we're hearing. You know, interestingly, though, I read in preparation for this episode, I read um, a Guardian article, a esteemed British newspaper, The Guardian, whose film reviews aren't anything to really kind of ignore and overlook. And they said that this movie, uh, uh, and this is having a review at the time, 2006, they, cl- they ranked it better 
than X-Men 2. Oh they said X-Men God. 2 was clunky and didn't achieve what it set out to do, and that Last Stand is the superior film, and it's a great kind of installment and ending to the I, to the franchise. I think with Guardian reviews on the little tangent, I've always had a... Their, their film reviews always annoy me because they... They tend to be very contradictory for contradictory sake. Like, oh, well, I didn't like well, this film. Certainly, in the last ten years, maybe when the when newspapers all went off a cliff. But yeah, yeah. it that's weird. what I think. Did did this feel to you? There was a period of time, I think, before I before the MCU started. Yeah, when the third movie is the end of the franchise. Yeah, the like that's bo- it. That's how it works. It's a trilogy. Mm-hmm. You might if you, you might be lucky to get to three films, but the third one is the last one, and then after that they aren't doing any more. That that is how it always felt to me as a kid in the in the nineties and stuff, and, and up to this age. The simple that, rule is, is that something f- you recognise? Yeah, I recognise that. I was just about to add to that. The rule is the first one's great, second one's so bad, so much better. Third one, meh. That's how it always goes with a lot of film trilogies. May, may maybe I mean yeah. certainly when I when I was growing up, I think it was. Uh, in general, everything, every, the whole thing was sequels sucked. There was, yeah. a, and then you had the exception to the rule, which would be the Godfather, Terminator, um, aliens, things like that. Yeah, but it's still a drop down from the first one. <sighs> That's... Get, get out of here. Yeah, I've had this debate before, which one's better, and it's and even I have a hard time. But I have, I, I personally, subjectively prefer Aliens, but I know objectively mistake. It's like, <laughs> so thing with, good. The thing with Alien, the Alien franchise, is that because they almost switch genres with each movie, yeah. it's kind of hard to compare them. Yeah. It's like if Terminator 2 had been a horror movie and the first one had been a straight action, you'd go, well, it's hard to... You know, anyway. Yeah. But yes, th- this definitely... And it, having the word last in the title, it definitely made me kind of think, oh, this is going to be the last one. Yep. And the feeling at the time was that from here we were going to branch off into solo movies for each star. That's what there I heard w- at the time, and I, I, I there was there, some buzz. Yeah, there was, of course, and the one that we got, which was which was Wolverine, X Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> but X Men Origins Magneto was in the pipeline, as was X Men Origins Storm. Um, now the the creative failure of this movie, and the creative failure and commercial failure of the Wolverine movie that we've looked at. It ended up kind of dismantling that plan completely, amazing, and, and leading to the soft reboot that we got with um, with First Class. Um, but do you remember? Do you remember feeling like this was the end of the X Men? Did you do you think there's oh there's going to be an X Men four, or did you kind of leave this going? That's kind of wrapped up. Well, I, I, yeah, I I left there going like this is wrapped up. They might do some, as you say, like prequel movies just to sort of cash in a little bit more but i can't see them continuing with this because mm. the story's been told some of the main characters uh, i mean killed off. professor x is dead um yeah it's kind of it kind of feels like that's perhaps the end of that story really yeah and, and plus for me it was this case of there are you know film franchise unless like it's like james bond or something you only have three films and then that's it you've, you've told your story and it wasn't until of course we got the mcu where you have this uh, st- uh, s- vast st- uh, stranding, strand of films and, and other media projects that connect together. Before then, you were just like, no, you have your first, second, third film, boom, done. 
Done. Well, inter- interestingly, we still haven't had. I mean, I think, I think from aside from the Avengers, I suppose. But each solo, like, like there hasn't been four Iron Man movies. There, we haven't had four Captain America movies. We've had four 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 movies, <laughs> which is funny because we've it, had four Thors. Oh yeah, we have. We have, and we're about to get a fourth Captain America. But then there's almost the James Bond thing where it's kind of reset, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, three feels like. Three and and it, and it was. It's a I pleasing I, I, number. It's a pleasing I number. I forget Rob. when did Spider Man Three come out? Uh, Two thousand seven. Right. So the year after this, we then get another very ropey third. Well, <laughs> although we went third installment, but when we looked at it, we yeah. went, "This actually is not as bad as everyone talks about." There's a lot of great things in Spider Man Three. Yeah, I remember listening um, to a podcast. How did this get made? And they did Spider Man Three, and one of them was just trashing it for for trash's sake. And I was getting quite annoyed. I was like, "It's not that bad. Come on, grow up." So are we going to have the the? Are you will you be the great defender of X Men Last Stand in this episode? Oh, it's going to be a hard thing to do <laughs> because I I'll get more round round to my opinions on it throughout the podcast and of course at the end. But let me tell you, they they severely diminished on this rewatch. But there are stuff there's stuff I like. There's stuff in this film that I still think is strong. I light a lantern. <laughs> To guide me out of the foggy, misty quagmire of the mind of the muggle that is Will Preston, I need someone to light the way for me. I stick a giant H onto the side of the lantern and into the sky. (laughs) (laughs) It sends up the H signal to call in the man to let me know everything I need to know about the behind the scenes of this movie it's Mr. Hollywood himself the man that digs through the trash cans and the dirt infested sites of Hollywood um, Mr. Hollywood what can you tell me about X-Men Last Stand uh, speaking of uh, big dirty trash cans yes X-Men Last <laughs> hey, banter. well <laughs> come on you saw that coming don't act that surprised uh Let's let's start from the beginning. Let's look at the uh, make sense of the dollars and cents of the X Men trilogy, as it was thought of at the time. First of all, we had X Men in two thousand. Production budget seventy five million. Domestic box office one hundred and fifty seven point three million. International box office one hundred thirty nine point million, giving it bring it to a worldwide box office of two hundred and ninety six point eight. Oh, that's kind of it's kind of crazy to think that the first like the superhero movie's been made for 75 million mm. you can't make anything for 75 million these days no no and it's such this was the um it's before spider-man x-men isn't it it's this the is, first yeah yeah it's the first kind of superpower we, we talked before about how blade really is a vampire movie it's not really kind of like a marvel comic superhero movie exactly um, and this, so X Men is the first, really the first Marvel superhero film, um, it, it, you know, in, in the theaters and stuff. And and so it's a real, everything's a gamble, um, even with the great track record of the cartoon series, seventy five million, uh, not a lot of cheddar to make a film with multiple characters and superpower. It's like for seventy five million, you got Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen <laughs> and a bunch of other people yeah. and special effects and a mansion you've, and a jet plane. You've got Halle Berry at uh, prime. That's that's very true. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. Then he brings us on to X Men Two, two thousand and three. Uh, production budget one hundred twenty-five million, so a little bit more. Domestic box office two hundred and fourteen point nine million. Inter- a lot more. A, a lot, lot more. more. Yeah, the, the snowballing on this is definitely happening. Uh, international box office one hundred ninety-one point three million. Worldwide box office four hundred six point three million. So yes, yeah. There's a there's big big upswing for the second one. Vested the first interest. one obviously sort of proved that the formula works and. Mm made some fans converted some new people into thinking about this and you know i i don't like the decision to not have proper superhero costumes but it looks like everything really worked in that first movie it didn't scare too many people off it brought people in uh, to 200 200 you know nearly 300 million in 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 the year 2000 is a, a real big amount of money i really hope that with uh, this uh, new version of wolverine that we're going to see in Deadpool three, the the old bringing bringing the old costume back will spark an interest for when the X Men come round of going. Let's not do the black leather again. Let's get all the classic costumes or a version know. of it. I, I think there'll be updated versions. I don't. First of all, the Wolverine wearing a costume in Deadpool is going to be a joke. It's not going to be serious in the slightest. It does kind of look cool. He's going to be. It does look very cool. He's going to be forced to wear it. Like Deb, it's good. the joke is going to be Deadpool. Like I got you a costume too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. wearing that. Oh, yeah, that's that's going to be the guy yeah, or whatever. But I I definitely do think when 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 the MCU kind of introduced the, the, the mutant characters, I think there'll be kind of updated versions of. I think perhaps the the distinctive costumes. I, I don't know though. I, I mean, anything could happen. I um, I really hope we get something exciting, especially Storm. Woof. Anyway, uh, <laughs> brings us on. To the dumpster of X Men Last Stand, two thousand. You say that though. Yeah. This I remember. This didn't this movie make? Well, you'll tell me. Well, I remember this money. This movie made 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 a dumpster full not, of money. Rob, same, it make, I don't think it made the same as X Men Two, but it did okay, didn't no. it? No, it's a. Uh, well, the best. Let's, let, let's go through it. So, X Men Last Stand, two thousand six. Production budget two hundred ten million. Domestic box wow. office. Yeah, that is. So in three years, yeah. it's gone from one hundred and twenty five. So that's, like, that's nearly more, another hundred million on top. More than doubled. More than doubled its production budget. Then you have the domestic box office, which was a bit more, two hundred thirty-four point three million. International box office, two hundred twenty-four point nine million, bringing to a worldwide box office of four hundred and fifty-nine point two. Wow. Million. Yeah. What was that again? Four hundred fifty-nine point two million. And then on top so, of that, so it did more. It did more than X Men Two uh, yeah. by by like by like nearly sixty million. But as we've seen, especially with Iron Man Three, which some consider to be the best Iron Man film for some reason, uh, <laughs> Iron Man Three got one billion, didn't it? The box office. But that was because, as we discussed, that was from the roll-on effect of the Avengers. Yeah, X Men Last Stand. That was a roll-on does... effect from X Men Two, I reckon. I think maybe Batman Begins had something to do with it as well. Oh, that, what, that what year is that? 2005? 2005 or 2006. I, so I so it's one. just, I mean, when, when, when those big ones come along, um, when someone like Batman comes along and, and, and has a, a big success and re- reinvigorates a bit of interest in comic book movies, that, that could have had a, a soft, kind of a soft um, help to this one. But yeah, certainly I think X-Men 2 did. Have we got any... Um, um, you had video sales. I had video. I was just about to previously. tell you on, on top of that video sales. Mm. Couldn't get it for the previous two. Sadly, the total oh, that's a shame. estimated domestic video sales for that were 106 uh, million. Wow, another 100 million on top which for is fe- uh, DVD which is, sales. Yeah, this is very important. To, and that's to that's that only in. that's only in America. So you that's could probably double that. 
Yeah, double that for the whole world. Probably worldwide. double that for the world. Yeah, so it's probably another two two hundred million. Actually, I'm always interested to see to actually if that, if that does translate well because they're always talking about the China market as well. Uh, I wonder how that translates to the China. I'm not sure if the Chinese market would have been opened up back in 2006 to these major. Ah, like, yeah, w- yeah. What's happened is maybe I'm, I don't I don't know everything about that, but I know yeah. that a lot of concessions have to be had to be made in recent years with films to to get them that that kind of. Um, universal kind of approval and to get them to work in china yeah um what else can you tell us about this movie mr hollywood right oh strap in strap in for the dumpster ride of your life so first of all (laughs) brian singer the director of the first two x-men films left the project in july 2004 in favor of developing superman returns for warner brothers pictures i remember before we go on i remember that distinctively happening that was heavily reported in all the movie magazines, uh, Empire, etc. Total Film. It was reported in the uh, the, the comic book magazine as well, um, uh, Wizard Magazine, um, and it felt I I thought that at the time was a great move because yeah. I felt that X Men Two was so good. Yeah, Brian Singer's stock was so high, and I really wanted a great director to to helm the next Superman movie, and I thought this is going to be fantastic. He he really knocked it out of the park with X Men Two. Um, so yeah, I, I distinctly remember this being like a major news story at the time. I remember, and we've spoken about uh, Superman Returns before, and you know, you love it. I have a massive soft spot for it, and we understand why uh, it wasn't well received at the time. I and- yeah, I'm not sure I love it. I, I like you. I have a soft spot for it. And I think it's really good. Yeah. I think it's a very. I think it's a overall a positive experience. Yeah. Both, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. I I I, I tend to use hyperbole, mate. <laughs> uh, looking back on this decision and how the third X Men film turned out under director Brat, Brett Ratner's helm, Singer said it would have been nice to have done the third one, but I really wanted to have the Superman Returns experience, and I'd never really talked about it before. But there were negotiating issues that that, that were there. I didn't fully have X Men three in mind, and I had had this take on superman and suddenly that was easy that was an easier deal it took three days and we were ready to we're ready to go so i made that move and uh it annoyed certain people we're all good now but you know maybe i wouldn't have ended up with x-men first class and where i'm sitting today making this epic combination of casts so in the end i'm glad i had my superman experience it was a little awkward for me to see x-men 3 obviously in fact, I was so emotionally nervous about it that a person, who shall remain nameless, brought me to a building in the middle of the night in Los Angeles and sat me in front of a computer and showed me the movie. Completely against the law, long before it was finished, just so I could be prepared. Wow. And I watched it reel by reel on the computer. You know, Brett and I are good friends. I actually saw him in London last week, and I don't know if I've ever told him that frankly, That frankly, because I just kept it to myself. But I just needed to see, see the movie so that when I actually went to the theatre and saw it, it wasn't shocking to me or disturbing. Seeing a Superman movie will be very different. I'm actually very excited to see Zack Snyder's Superman because it will be so different from mine, and that's quite distant. But today, I don't have any regrets because I'm sitting here doing this amazing hybrid, so maybe it was all meant to be. He has no regrets uh, once he's welcomed back into the fold, but yeah. like he, it was not a good move for Brian Singer. Yeah, because he really left Fox high and dry. Yeah, and it sounds like it. The movie he went on to do did not work. Yeah, and didn't make money. Didn't get a sequel. Didn't make a franchise. So he 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 kind of 
you know, he he kind of he kind of shit the bed in that one a little bit, really. Yeah, uh, it, it makes me think of creative projects uh, I've done where I've been like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, and then like, oh, I've got other commitments, and I I I I leave, and then I'm really really sad when so you know, oh, it turns out I was doing a lot of weight, lifting a lot of weight behind it or whatever, and now it's not going so well because I'm I'm not there. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, if if uh, I think maybe if Matthew Vaughn had stuck on, maybe although I don't have much faith in him doing a movie like this. Yeah. If the, if X Men if Last Stand had been creatively better, um, I think it would have been a real blow to uh, Brian Singer's kind of career. Yeah. The fact that it was commercially a lot more viable must have stung. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's like it's like like someone being more popular than you doing something you used to do. That may, I, I know that feeling. But we'll get on to the other directors, actually, in a bit. So, by the time of his departure, Singer had only produced a partial story treatment with X2 writers Dan Harris and Michael Doherty, who accompanied him to Superman Returns. The treatment focused on Jean Grey's resurrection, which would introduce the villainess Emma Frost, a role intended for Sigourney Weaver. According to Harris, we were going to do X-Men 3 for a little while longer and our big secret or coup was, and it's not going to happen so it's okay, we wanted to have a character that was Emma Frost, a famous X-Men character. She's called the White Queen. We were going to ask Sigourney to be, to be her. She was an empath in our version of the movie, which means she could control other people's emotions. I would have so liked that to sounds, see. That sounds like it's very heavily weighted on, on focused on, on, on Jean Grey. I know this movie kind of is, but it's also kind of about like four other things. It's yeah, I'll get, we'll get onto that. But it's a very muddy it, film. It feels a little bit like that Spider-Man Three experience we had, where <laughs> let's put Venom in. Oh, okay, that's ruined everything. The Sandman thing and the Green Goblin thing, and then the Venom things in there as well. Well, the Sandman, the Green Goblin thing is just like like eight thre- initial threads tying up while Venom in Spider-Man 3, literally from another world, yeah, coming yeah. and ruining everything. And it does that. on. Yeah, it's... I mean, I, lo- I, I watched Spider-Man 3 for Venom. I was like, oh, great, Venom. But then it was like, looking back at it now, it's like, yeah, that, that ruined it. That sh- Venom should not have been in there. <laughs> and yet I really liked uh, Thingy's take on Eddie Brock and what the movie the movie yeah. take on Eddie Brock was really interesting. There was some really good stuff in Spider-Man 3. Anyway, we're not going to... We're not going to talk about Spider-Man 3. We're talking about X-Men 3, baby. Further to this, the partial story treatment would feature Frost as an empath manipulating Jean's emotions and, like the finished film, Magneto's desire to control her. Overwhelmed by her powers, Jean kills herself, but Jean's spirit survives and becomes a godlike creature which Doherty compares to the Star Child in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Why not just compare it to the Phoenix saga in Nomad? <laughs> What are you reaching out for other things for? He's, he's reaching out, so it's like, oh, we compare it to the thing in the comics, and people go, oh. I, I mean, that, that, like, like a Stanley Kubrick that's movie. What it, that's oh. what it feels like, yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, oh yeah, highbrow, let's do something highbrow. New contracts for returning cast members were made, as the actors and actresses had signed for only two films, which is very odd. Hugh Jackman's contract... Well, not at the time, not at the time. Oh, because they weren't thinking about there franchising. Weren't, they weren't franchises at the time. Of course... God, so a lot this has like, like in the last twenty years. Samuel L. Jackson's weird thing, where he signs on for ten movies or whatever it was, eight movies. Downey didn't sign on for that many. Like Downey had to renegotiate before Avengers, or maybe he signed on for like four or five movies or four or five appearances or something. Yeah, yeah. It's um, well, it, again, mo- movies lasted for three. 
Yeah, this is this is a completely different world. Uh, Hugh Jackman's contract included the approval of director, initially uh, offering the position to Darren Aronofsky, with whom he just finished filming On the Fountain. This is maybe the eighth time we've seen Darren Aronofsky's name attached to a movie that didn't happen involving that's, superheroes. That's mad. Do you think it... I don't think he'll ever do a superhero movie. No. He's too highbrow. No. He's None too- of these were ever serious offers. No. No but- one is seriously offering an X-Men movie to Darren Aronofsky. They're just not doing it. But- it's just like... It's just this kind of Hollywood BS thing they do of like, yeah, we're cool. Yeah, we're hip. Yeah, we're going to offer a a McDonald's (laughs) franchise movie to Darren Aronofsky because we know how everyone culturally loves him and fellates him on command. So that's what what it is. It's taking a meeting to take a meeting. It's making a phone call to make a phone call. It's nonsense. ever done a movie? vaguely in that direction of like mainstream sort of popcorn fodder movie i don't think he ever has i don't think so i don't no, think not really you, you can he... happily sit and watch popcorn on a friday night with your girl watching requiem for a dream no um, no it's too depressing <laughs> you know originally his uh he had this idea for a movie that was about a wrestler who yeah. was in a relationship with a ballerina um, uh, the high, he wanted he wanted like high culture and low culture yeah, mixing together and yeah. in the end he split it off and did two movies that's a little, little two, Aronofsky I mean, trivia for you I've, I, I, I really enjoyed The Wrestler but I haven't watched Black Swan yet because it's just I know his movies take so much effort to watch they are so emotionally draining that one's I don't think that was emotionally draining particularly maybe that's a male experience watching maybe yeah. women find it emotionally draining I don't know it's more in line of a thriller for any than anything else it's it's quite a, it's quite a fun watch i i might go back and just make a list of darren aaron i can't pronounce his name his name first and surname run together into one huge name uh anyway darrenofsky darrenofsky uh yeah i will I'm, i might go through some of his films at some point that i haven't seen yet anyway josh whedon whose comic book storyline gifted from astonishing x-men which he wrote was integrated into the script's plot uh uh, to, uh, but it was turned down. But turned down the offer for directing because he was working on a Wonder Woman film, which didn't happen. He's always Did, working on a comic movie that never happens. He's, he's always got something. Zack Snyder was also approached, but he was already committed to three hundred. So that uh, we were spared. We were spared. <laughs> Although, nah, nah, actually, it would have been worse. Uh, Guillermo del Toro was also offered to direct the film turned it down as he was already committed to Pan's Labyrinth which is really fantastic I don't think he uh, uh, like he was never going to make this movie no he was never no, going to make this movie no. he's offered everything after after the Hellboy movie he's offered everything but yeah no he, I, 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 I like his approach which is oh, I just want to make monster movies that I like yeah and it's like great could continue doing that and Pan's Labyrinth is just an incredible movie in February 2005 with still no director hired Fox announced on May 5th uh, 2006 a release date sorry announced a may 5th 2006 release date with filming to start in july 2005 in with Vancouver. no director in february they said this movie starts in a couple of months and we ain't got no one to make it we don't have a script we don't have nothing but this is when it's gonna start aren't you all i i genuinely remember thinking at the time hmm. i I remember re- and, and and when I'd known it had gone through. Maybe I remember when I know that Vaughn had left as well. I remember as soon as Matthew Vaughn 
left the movie and they kept making it, <laughs> I remember saying, this is going to suck. Yeah. This is not going to be good. Like, it, it, it feels like a, a McDonald's progression line yeah. without anyone overseeing stuff. And it's just, yeah, we've got to keep making the burger. It's but like there's no chef here. There's, yeah, there's, but, there's, there's no supervisors in today's shift. Yeah, everyone's sort of going, maybe we should just, you know. Well, thank you for ordering from McDonald's. Your burger is going to be with you in 10 minutes time. Now, there's no one here to cook it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we are reasonably certain that in the next 10 minutes... We're going to be able to hire someone to come and cook. We're going to be able to get um, them to approve the recipe and make the burger. So your eating time is guaranteed. Someone, we're going to, we'll find a homeless guy. It doesn't matter. We'll get someone in to make this burger for you. Don't you worry. Doesn't that make you feel like, uh, uh, don't you, aren't you really looking forward to that meal now? Now you know you're definitely going to eat food, something. <laughs> you're going to have something in a box in 10 minutes. Aren't you really jazzed for that? We don't know who's going to make it. We don't know what recipe they're going to use. We don't know how it's going to... We don't really care about the recipe, and we don't really care who's making it. But we're going to present to you a box of something edible. Get excited. Get ready. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. I'm stalling it. Anyway. <laughs> so, one month later, the studio signed Matthew Vaughan to direct and pushed the release date three weeks to May 26. Uh, explain who Matthew Vaughan is to people? Uh, he directed uh, for X-Men First Class. <laughs> no, he didn't. I thought he did. Who, who directed no. X-Men First Class? Isn't First Class uh, Brian Singer? He comes back for that one. And that's after Wait this. a minute. This is... So I Matthew, think Matthew Vaughan was involved with it, but did, did, did Matthew... No. Mm. Matthew Vaughan is the... He's like best mates with Guy Ritchie. Yeah. And he produced Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, and the one after that... No, he directed First Brad Class. Pitt. Just looked it up. He directed First oh, Class. Oh, okay. I thought Brad that was Singer Singer. did um, uh, Days of Future Past. Okay. But at this point, he has not directed that film. It's in the future. Mm. Um, <laughs> Matthew Vaughan produced those movies, and then he started directing movies of his own. He did... Um, guys, it's got Daniel Craig in it. Oh, um, layer, cake. layer cake, layer cake. That's the one, which is a eh, not bad it's, gangster it's, it's, it's movie. Right. It's okay. It's all right. I remember a lot of people talking about it like it was kind of a cerebral gangster movie. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. Cerebral. It was, Jesus. Like it was better and different to Guy Ritchie's movies. Yeah, but that's not a, that's not a high bar. No, I don't. It, Guy, it Guy Ritchie's maybe, gangster films as, are just are just beer adverts. They're, Lock, they're, stock, and snatch are kind of are kind of fun. They're, 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 fun. they're really they're really punchy. Um, yeah, so he's um, and and those those are movies that like were massive in the UK and Europe, mm. and actually made a dent in America. They actually did business in America. Um, so he had a bit of a, a, a nice bit of cachet, but not like he's not a first pick to direct. Like this isn't. I know today with Marvel films, Marvel Studios. Mm. They've got so much in place. They've got this huge infrastructure in place that it is almost like they can take an indie director, plug them into a franchise movie. We don't bat an eye anymore. Yeah. But back then in 2006, that wasn't the case. Like, it, it just really wasn't. Um, this, this was a guy that made very muted, kind of like low-budget, low... Uh, just just muted movies like indie movies so it, it's mm. kind of it was a it was not an obvious choice to get this guy in to make a big big action blockbuster with a massive budget it was weird 
Yeah, it looking back, it is weird because because all I think of is uh, it, to me, it makes sense. You just think, oh, it's Matthew Vaughan. It's you know, he's he's done things before. Then you think, oh, wait a minute, at the time, he pretty much no. just done layer cake. <laughs> he just done people talking to a camera about shooters, shooters. And robberies and stuff. Yeah. You know. However, before filming began, Vaughan withdrew from the project before before uh, it all kicked off. Giving his reasons in 2007, Vaughn said, What happened with X-Men Last Stand was I didn't have the time to make the movie that I wanted to make. I had a vision for how it should be, and I wanted to make sure I was making a film as good as X-Men 2, X-Men United, and I knew there was no way it could be. I just suddenly knew it wasn't the right thing for me to do. It was a tough decision because it was a hell of an opportunity. But I was make I was trying to make a career as a director, and I didn't want to be the guy accused of making a bad X Men movie. As it happens, I could have made something a hundred times better than the film that was eventually made. It sounds arrogant, but I could have done something with far more emotion and heart. I'm probably going to be told off for saying that, but I genuinely believe it. So they didn't. None of that was publicised at the time. Nope. The story was. Matthew Vaughan had a, a family commitment, a family yep. problem, a family issue, like a health issue or something like that, and he had to... But that's not what happened. What happened is, yeah. we're so pleased you've ordered your meal here at McDonald's. <laughs> it's going to be with you in 10 minutes. We don't have a chef yet. Oh, we've just hired a chef. The chef says, it's going to take me half an hour to make that. No, it's not. It's going to take you 10 minutes, because we've guaranteed 10 minutes yep. for that customer. So you've got, and it's going to take me half an hour to to, 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 to find the right recipe and cook the food. It's going to take me half an hour. That's I'm, what happened. I'm really glad you stuck with this analogy because it really, <laughs> it's really, it, it, it's, it's making me go like, oh, this is why it's so bad. Because like, <laughs> I'm just like, back then it's different. Like, because as you say, you've got this whole like fra uh, franchise system set up for any in, uh, uh, director to come in and, and do a good job. But yeah, wow, this is mad. Absolutely mad. Mad. It, on June tw uh, 5th, 2005. MTV Boy arrives. Where MTV is he? Oh, God. What was it? Rush Hour 2 he did before this or something like that? All the Rush Hours. All the Rush Hours. Jeez. But Brett Ratner is like a mutant. He's a, he's a... He has made like half a dozen Mariah Carey music videos. Mm. He directed like a Hannah Montana video. He... <laughs> do you, right. Do you know Christmas and Hollis, the greatest Christmas song of all time by Run DMC? They play it. Uh, the one from it's Die playing, Hard. Yeah, it's playing in the limo in Die Hard. Yeah. He directed Christmas and Hollis. This is like his first, I think his first professional like work was Christmas and Hollis. That's so he's cool. a lot of, he's worked like Red Man and, and uh, Mary J. Blige, just like loads of hip hop and, and rap stars. But he's really like a, he was a, and that's how we met Chris Tucker. And then when he mostly met yeah. Chris Tucker, yeah. They did one. They did another film before Rush Hour. I forget what it was. Like a knock around comedy that he. That was his first movie, and then he did the Rush Hour movies and stuff, which are for my money fab two thousands action comedies. The first two, wonderful fun. I had a lot of fun with the first two, but I remember going to cinema to see Rush Hour two, and then we came out about a camp came out. Uh, the next day, I don't remember anything about the film, but I remember no, laughing. But that's yeah. I think that I think they're all sometimes like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just remember having fun at the time. Anyway, yeah. anyway, so Brett Ratner was confirmed on June fifth, two thousand five, as Vaughn's replacement. Talking about his experience with the X Men, Ratner said, "I was a huge fan of the cartoon. It was my favorite cartoon ever. It was incredible. Except the suits were much different. So I was a little disappointed when I got into the X Men comics." I'm a comic book geek, but I'm not an X-Men comic book geek. I'm a fan of the cartoon, so 
Just to make that clear. So he'd never read an X-Men comic in his life, and he's lying about the cartoon. Maybe he saw it on TV a few times, but come on. Come on. Talking about the film's storyline... I will say this. It's very, very hard. I know you actually fit into this. Here we go. Because you haven't read Marvel Comics. But it's very, very hard to be a comic book fan and to have not been an X-Men fan. Like... yeah. They, they 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 dominated comics in the 80s and in the 90s and the start of the 2000s they did it again with Warren uh, with Grant Morrison and mm. then with uh Joss Whedon it's just it's really peculiar a, an awful lot of like the big crossover events are x-men based like once you get once you get past like uh Grant Morrison and 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 Joss Whedon then we get House of M Right, so then they're back in the t- like they're just it's kind of really hard to do that. I don't believe him. I just don't believe MTV boy. I I think he I think he's he's telling porkies, mate. So yes, talking about the film storyline involving it's the light. It's a bit at the end where he I will says, get round to this bit. At some I'm point. a fan of the cartoon. Just to make that clear, like why are you so defensive in this statement? Why are you winking at the camera? <laughs> <laughs> he's just desperate. Is want to leave this interview saying I have no idea who any of these people are. Yeah, who's I, laser beam super cook? Oh, that guy. Yes, laser beam super cook. Yeah. <laughs> well, from what I've read about him, he's, he said he, he, he doesn't come across as a nice guy. Anyway, uh, talking about the film storyline involving a mutant cure, Ratner said the cure is really the villain of the movie. Every single character is going to have an opinion of it. I really understand the point of view of Magneto and Xavier. <clears throat> I understand why someone like Storm would definitely not take the cure. If you know the comic book. The backstory of Storm is that she was worshipped in her village village in Africa and she changed the weather. So why would she ever take the cure? It didn't make sense. And then there's Rogue, who can't have contact with humans. You would understand why she would consider taking it. I think it has a lot of contemporary relevance. I think it's something that is an issue that a lot of people deal with. Alienation, prejudice, and I think that each person is going to feel differently about it. Simon Kinberg, who worked on two other Fox-produced Marvel comic film adaptions, uh, Fantastic Four and Electra, was... Both peak-level script writing. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, be nice. Was hired as writer for X-Men 3 in August 2004. X2 co-writer Zach Penn was separately working on his own draft, and the two joined forces for a combined screenplay in January 2005. Kinberg wanted the comic book arc, the Dark Phoenix saga, to be the emotional plot of the film, while Gifted would serve as the political focus. He said, I'm a huge X-Men comic fan, and I grew up with a, uh, a huge X-Men geek, so I had, the, I had read the vast majority of comics that were, in my, that were in my lifetime, and I was certainly familiar with the Phoenix saga. I went back and reread the Phoenix comics in great detail, not just the Claremont saga, but also other incarnations of the Phoenix over the X-Men's history. We did a lot of that type of research, and Zach and I photocopied pages that we felt were especially That's illegal. Relevant. Send him to prison. Send him to prison. Yeah, but he's still doing better than uh, Ratner and talking about X-Men, to be fair. <laughs> and posted them all over our office. The walls were literally wallpapered with pages of comics. One thing I knew, uh, knew going in was that it was going to be the Dark Phoenix story since Brian had laid the groundwork for that in X2. But we didn't know, what we didn't know uh, was what the other parallel stories would be. I think everyone felt that one of the strengths of the first two X-Men movies was that they had a number of parallel stories. 
In many ways, the Phoenix story is the emotional A plot of the film, but the political B plot of the film became about the cure. The, uh, <clears throat> the, that was actually a studio executive idea. One of them had read Josh Whedon's gifted run with the mutant cure in it and thought that that would be an interesting quandary for the characters. One thing that you'll find when you look online is whether fans do or do not like this movie and opinions are pretty wildly diverse, as you can imagine. No, they're not. (laughs) They certainly acknowledge that there is a lot of the comics represented in this movie. I won't claim credit for anything good in this movie, except Zack and I are the biggest X-Men geeks that were anywhere around this film, with the exception of Avi Arid. Zack and I were certainly the ones on set every day who were fighting really hard to shoehorn everything into the movie that we loved about the books. And it shows. Fighting hard doesn't doesn't sound good <laughs> sounds bad also when There's... you talk about fighting hard you, i prefer it's, it's usually reserved for people doing the right thing and shoehorning as many characters as you can to this film no that was that was that was wrong which it, I, I don't know sometimes I, I i could take that as as saying like we're fighting hard to make this a dark phoenix movie yeah okay and we were just defeated because <laughs> the dark phoenix movie there's not a lot for us to do with Magneto. In yeah. That. There's not a huge amount for us to do with Xavier. And those are the people that we're paying a lot of money to, so they've got to be the focal points, right? Yeah. That's sometimes a lot of the concern. They they just couldn't get it done. Like, yeah. it had been set up perfectly, really, by, by X-Men 2. And they just, they just, yeah, it just... Everything it could have been didn't happen. Because there's no, there's no way you read the Dark Phoenix saga and go, you know what this needs? Another plot. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like half the characters to be distracted by something else. Not Jeez. the fact that their best friend has become an evil god. The story and is destroying line. everything. I mean, that, that, that storyline for, for Dark for, or no, for the Phoenix saga and, and of course the Dark Phoenix, like, each of those storylines were almost the length of film of themselves in cartoon form. Yeah. Oh, anyway, no. I mean, and, and this this is this film is come runs at like ninety minutes, which is a godsend mm. in a way. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's like you, you, sorry, you're trying to do and a big plot and another plot in ninety minutes. There's, there's too much going on yeah. in this short movie. It's yeah. insane. It's mad. Going back to this has been quite a, quite an experience, believe me. But we'll get on to that anyway. So, the writers had to fight Fox executives to retain the Phoenix plot, as the studio only wanted... There we go! There we go! I knew it! There we go. The studio had only wanted the Cure story, as it provided a reason for Magneto's conflict with the X-Men. Still, the disputes made made not much... Sorry. Still, the disputes made them not add much for Jean Grey to do in most of the film's second half, as the executives consider the tone of the Phoenix story too dark for a mainstream summer movie, and that its appeal would be limited to hardcore fans rather than a general audience. This is just, they had a perfect kind of story set up, but the story yep. doesn't serve who they're already, like Ian McKellen, the movie studio want to repeat what has already worked. Yeah. You're going to them and saying, actually in this movie, we maybe don't need Magneto, or if we do, it's a muted role, and the folk, no, we want X-Men 2 works, we want X-Men 2. Can you do X-Men 2 again? Yeah. And call it The Last Stand? That's what we want because it worked. Well, no, there's going to be this whole other can't shift the focus. I'm sorry, it's got to be Magneto again. Looking back at it, because I remember the film being my my thoughts being going. Oh my god, she's become this evil thing. She's come back to the dead. But looking back at it, I think would it been a better film if they just focused on the Cure story? I reckon. 
Either or, if you'd taken Jean Grey out of this movie completely, yeah, and had the Cure story, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I'd if you'd mm. taken the Cure story out and focused entirely on Jean Grey going mad and evil, that would have been more interesting. I think you would have more success with the former because you're not going to be able to do a good job. But you, you need something bigger for that. But anyway, that's a entirely different thing. Speaking about unpopular divergences from the source material, Penn said. After the last X-Men movie, Simon Kimberg and I did this whole interview online and it was like a running thing where we tried to answer questions from fans about what we were going to do. I was really blunt. People asked, is Cyclops going to have a bigger role in this movie? Is it going to be more the, his story than Wolverine's? And I said, no, it's not. I said, <laughs> if you want me to go into it, I will, but I'm not going to lie to you. If you want to see a literal translation of the comics that you love... You're not going to get it. And maybe that's fair and maybe it isn't. What frustrated me was I thought that fans would appreciate that I could be straight with them. Unlike the way people normally just tell them what they want to hear. I could say to them, look, this isn't going to be treated the way you want. Is Phoenix going to be a cosmic <laughs> force that's a giant bird of fire? No, because it doesn't fit into the world. If you're going to get angry, go ahead and be angry at me about that. That's because I'm just telling you that straight up. That's not what people are saying they want, and you're wrong about that. The, the MCU has shown us, right, yep. that you can change these practicalities about the stories you're telling, that fans are not after a literal translation of the comic books, except for some crazy people on Twitter, and Twitter's not real, right? <laughs> but when you keep the spirit of those stories and those characters alive, and when you repeat motifs and themes and ideas and concepts from the comic books that are successful, that's when it really works. Yeah. You did not have people in that chat saying, is Phoenix going to be a cosmic fire per No, they said, <laughs> is Cyclops going to have a bigger role? And I remember feeling this massively at the time. Yeah. That Cyclops had just become... He just... I mean, kind of the cartoon didn't help, but Cyclops looked like he was just a, such a non-entity in these movies. Yeah. And it sucks, because Marsden's a good actor, and mm. Cyclops is a great character, and he was really coming into his own... Um, it all over again really in this time in the, in the, in the 2000s and it, the answer is no because Hugh Jackman is the star so the movie is always going to be about Magneto and Wolverine it just always is do you think they'll make that mistake again when they bring in uh, X-Men to the fold well do you reckon they'll try and like I'm going to sound really clumsy here will they try and make uh, uh, Cyclops to be like hey he's kind of like Cap you know he's like a leader he's a you know, Possibly. I mean, yeah. I think they'll definitely emphasize him more. I mean, Wolverine is always going to be the star because, although I don't know, because uh, generations' sensibilities change. Mm. Wolverine was not well liked when he first appeared. Yeah. Um. It, it, it took it took a little bit more of that time, and it took us getting into later into the seventies for this kind of Dirty Harry character <laughs> to kind of take root and then it was the 80s where he really f yeah. found his major fame and, and success when the anti-hero was yeah. a major thing in the 80s and yeah. in movies and tv shows and stuff so who knows is the anti if the anti-hero is still popular i think people always tend to like that gruff tough person that's yeah. just always you know a take no a take no bs person yeah it's it's cyclops is always kind of a harder sell because he is um, a slightly more noble, complicated character. Yeah, um, yeah, I get that. Anyway, so as Penn's saying, and I thought that would, they would at least appreciate someone being honest with them and saying, look, this is what you can expect and what you can't expect. The irony is, I found that it didn't work that way. 
I found that whoever the messenger was, because I was telling them things they didn't want to hear, they could separate between me telling them I'm not saying I want it this way. I'm saying that I'm saying that's the way it's going to be. And so this is just him moaning about fans. Is that what this is? I think so. Get, deal with deal with it. It's very <laughs> irrational, and they create these fake canonical things. You know, if the Hulk isn't it this high, it's wrong, and it's just ridiculous. There's no way to deal with it. But what's bad is that there are times when they're right about that type of stuff. When I say no, exactly what you're complaining about is what's is what's making the movie worse. You're totally right. Like if the Phoenix is going to be set up as being part of the story, you can't drop her from the story to favour something else. You've got to finish it off. We got there in the end. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah we got there in it's the like end. Aside from that like, side journey where it's just like, and all these fans are saying mean things to me, the geeks. <laughs> Do you know what that feels like? That feels like Brexit. It's like, ah, oh, we, got, we got the deal signed in the end, but everybody's shouting at me. <laughs> Maybe. I don't Maybe. know. <laughs> Let me say stuff. Shut up. Uh, I did. I didn't stop you. You, you said that. Look, stop trying to counsel me and agree with stop everything. Stop trying I say. to control my reactions to your free speech. Yeah, you should. Just definitely control your involuntary reactions uh, to everything I say, unless it's positive. Uh, anyway, killing Cyclops was Fox's decision based on the availability of actor James Marsden, who was cast in, wait for it, Brian Singer's Superman Returns. So, another person. <laughs> He Lost. took, like, two writers and uh, and one of the actors with him. I mean, it's, it's more than just leaving a project. It's taking the ball home uh, to a degree. In the wrestling world, uh, mm. what happens is when you uh, don't carry on your contract with one company and mm. sign with a competing company, yeah, what they do is what they did to Cyclops here. They job you on the way out the door. <laughs> They're going to beat you on television, right? Yeah. You're going to lose. You're going to be defeated, because you're going to go after that other company. And that's what happened. Cyclops is leaving for the Superman movie, so they're going <laughs> to get him murdered by our next big heel, Gene Grey. Amazing, amazing. The studio considered killing him off, uh, off screen with a dialogue reference, but Kinberg and Penn insisted that Gene kill him, emphasising their relationship. Xavier's death was intended to match the impact of Spock's, uh, Spock's demise in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, as Fox felt the script called for a dramatic turning point. Kinberg and Penn were originally cautious, but grew to like the idea of killing off Xavier. They decided to write a post-credit scene suggesting the characters return for a sequel. Suggesting the characters return in a much cheaper actor. <laughs> <laughs> we like Professor Xavier, but Patrick Stewart costs a lot of money. So what if we just body swap him into Jeff? <laughs> From accounting. Jeff. He's, he's 27 and he costs nothing. It's okay, just sit down in a chair and grip your head and we'll do the special effects I and stuff. I walked out up. of that movie thinking that's what they'd done. Oh, man. That, just... that would have made sense. Because I've, I've seen them do that with other uh, movies where it's just like, eh, this is a cheap director video thing. We'll just have someone else playing him or explain Hugh, why he looks different. Hugh Jackman's new contract is quite high. Mm. Halle Berry's new contract is quite high. Get rid of Marsden. Get rid of uh, Stewart. Jeez. As the studio was simultaneously developing X-Men Origins Wolverine, limitations were set on which mutants could be used for cameo appearances in X-Men 3 in an attempt to avoid risking character development for Wolverine. Gambit was considered for both the convoy scene being freed by Magneto and the Battle of Alcatraz along, along with the X-Men. But the writers What a sucky way to introduce Gambit. Yeah. I mean, he, he had a sucky way anyway, but yeah. still... But the writers did not want to introduce a fan favourite character and not be able to do him justice. Kinberg said, We wrote a cameo for him 
and then really felt it was going uh, it was better to save gambit and gave him a major role in a future x-men movie rather than give him a cameo where fans would be saying that's all i get of gambit the plot that we chose for the story felt like it was so good at introducing Beast and Angel because of the Department of Mutant Affairs and Warren Worthington, the first being the creator of The Cure. It all felt very right and very resonant. Finding a place for Gambit where he wasn't going to be just one of the team uh, didn't come to us. We didn't want to introduce a fan-favorite character and not be able to do him justice. There was just wasn't enough space in this movie. Jesus Christ, guys. There's a hundred million people in this movie. Yeah. That's a thing that they keep making the mistake of. We don't yeah. need so many people. Nope. The X-Men franchise should work because there are so many popular X-Men characters over the decades that you should be able to get three movies out of your first team, right? Yes. And then you kind of don't need to reboot the franchise. You just kind of relaunch it. You yeah. keep two popular people, Xavier maybe and, and Wolverine or whatever, right? And then... With X-Men 4, you reboot it. And in that one, you can have Colossus, and you can have Gambit, and you can have uh, Shadow, you can have Kitty Pride, and you can have... Like, there's all these all these really popular characters you can introduce again and say, well, the new X-Men team, Professor Xavier's still in the mansion, and Wolverine leads the team. But Storm and all those lot, we phase them out too expensive. Mm-hmm. They've done their time. They want to they move on. Those actors do great. But we've got... 30, 40 years of popular characters we yeah. could just put in. And then three three films later, you can do the same. And then there are another new team, and we keep maybe Colossus and Gambit this time. But then we have another five new people. I, we don't need to throw everything at the screen in every goddamn movie from, and reduce these characters to cameos. What I thought was they didn't... Because like that's coming from a perspective of, oh, we could do this like a big franchise. I genuinely think, as we've said before, they thought this was going to be the last one. So it was like, hey... Good it's going to be the last X-Men film, boys. We, we well, have to throw everything in. They were saving a lot for the Wolverine thing, but mm. yes. Yeah, I think that is a good point. It's, it's like it's like we said before with, um, was it Daredevil? What we said, they think they're only <laughs> going to get one throw of the dice on Daredevil. So they yeah. do th- the, all three of the big stories in one, and it's yeah. just crazy. That was mad. Alan Cumming. Uh, had been uncomfortable with the long hours he had to take with the prosthetic makeup as Nightcrawler in X-Men 2, but still planned to return for the sequel. The part of Nightcrawler was so minimal, however, that the studio felt it was not worthwhile to go through the long and costly makeup process and the character was cut. Nightcrawler's absence was later explained in the tie-in video game. That's crazy because he was such a standout moment in, in in, in the X-Men 2. Yep. Such a standout performer. If you say if you say to somebody, hmm. "Oh, did you talk about X Men 2, They always bring up the opening with Nightcrawler. It's such a solid opening to a superhero film. It's insane. It's yeah. so good. It's so, anyway. I think Alan Cumming. The few things I've seen him in, he's always standing out. Like the other day, I watched uh, the, the, those scenes of him in uh, that James Bond film, Goldeneye, yelling, "I'm invincible!" And it's like, yeah, he just he, he needed to be an annoying sort of comic relief character but it's just like oh he's he's brought charm to it he's brought this weird weird <laughs> smirky greasy charm that just works he's, he's such a, a good actor he's a kind of like he's like a for me he was like the incel villain before the incel villain <laughs> the proto really, incel villain yeah he really yeah, i really believe yeah. him as this smarmy awful misogynistic incel hacker dude yeah 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 oh that's god i do love that film According to associate producer Dave Gordon, this is the biggest production ever filmed in Canada. 
It that, used to. That's, that, that, okay. What a great thing to say. <laughs> Here's the read sentence. for that. He goes, yeah. This is the biggest production of film. This is the biggest production ever filmed in Canada. <laughs> to, to be fair, they, they, a lot of filming happens in Canada for US I films because it's cheaper to Vancouver. do. It used to be X2, now it's X3. So the 210 million budget also made The Last Stand the most expensive film to be made at the time. The film's record would be first broken by Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest uh, with its $225 million budget. Off topic, I saw an interview with... Um Who's the who's the British the, the nice what's he lad Legolas and is in the oh, Pirates Orlando of the Caribbean He he got paid for the all of the Lord of the Rings movies. He got paid like a hundred and thirty thousand dollars for all three movies. Wow, <laughs> nothing at all, um, absolutely nothing because there was no, they just he was a nobody yeah, and they just yeah. signed and it was for three movies in, at once and it was just so you couldn't even renegotiate when the first one was a success. Oh god, none of them could renegotiate. Oh, they god. all signed for three movies, so it was a hundred and thirty grand for however many years of his life. But then uh, somebody said that he made all that money back on the Pirates movies and of, of it launched his career. Did. So, of course yeah. he did. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. That reminds me of that, that thing about David Bowie where uh, he, he he was locked into his first major record contract that lasted all throughout the 70s and early 80s. It was just like, oh, uh, not a good deal. So one of, that was one of the motivating factors to him becoming weirder later in the 70s. And then when that record contract broke and he got a new one, uh, which was much better for him financially. He released "Let's Dance," one of the most wow. <laughs> you could tell, like, hey, I'm going to make the best like pop lowest common denominator album, so I make now even I, more money. Now I own it. Yeah, yeah. Now I yeah yeah. I, I I love that story. Anyway, finally, special effects supervisor John Bruno estimates that one sixth of the effects budget was spent on the Golden Gate Bridge scene, which employed both a miniature of the bridge and computer graphics. The sequence was originally intended to be more complex because Magneto was supposed to tear apart the bridge and create a new one. But the 10 months dedicated to making the scene work was nowhere near long enough for them to pull it off. So they settled for having Magneto simply lift the bridge and move it over to Alcatraz Island. It looks great. It, it, it does. It's, it's, it's a bit, obviously it's a little bit ridiculous, but it's supposed to be. But it's, it's fine. For, even for its time, it looks, you know, even for now, it's like, okay, you can kind of see where the CGI isn't good as modern standards, but it's still good. Yeah, I think, the, I think this movie, pretty much beginning to end, really does look great. These movies don't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> They're part of a wider and richer pop culture landscape that we have to dive into here um, on Marvel vs. Marvel. The year's 2006 when this movie comes out. Um, Will, do you remember what was happening in your life in 2006? Where were you? What were you doing? Where were you working? I was in Gosport. I was working in a bingo hall. I was living with my mum and I was in a band. What was the? Uh, what was your best bingo? If, uh, I don't know if Americans have the calls that we have. Oh, we weren't allowed to do the calls. What? Yeah, the bingo law in this country is if if you're doing it for cash bingo, you can't do the funny calls. You have to go 2 and 2, 22, all the 1s, 11. What? I didn't know that. I've done... I I did so many different jobs when I was in that role. I was... Uh, I was an assistant, but basically I did coals, I did uh, the canteen stuff, I did behind the bar, I, I did ticket sales. Who, which, so which, who owned, what, what casino, sorry, what, what, what bingo place was it? It was Crown Bingo, it was in Gosport, uh, it's, it's, it shut down uh, the other year. Uh, and Just turned, because, yeah. sorry, 
I was about to say that, but they're turning that building because it used to be a theater. They're turning it into like a music venue or something they could host events oh, at, cool. which I'm uh, I'm so pleased with because that was so, that was made for it. He even had one of those upper tiers you have, like a proper theater. Yeah, that's going to be such a great place for people to experience culture rather than uh, just piss away money. Okay, yeah. Uh, the the cinema I worked for was was, was the Apollo chain, Ooh, which is a very yes. very very small chain. But they had like they had like um, something like fifteen cinemas across the country. But they mm. also owned a load of bingo um, bingo <laughs> places as well. So it was, it was Apollo Bingo and mm. Apollo Cinemas. So I was just checking to see if it was the same company. Um, and we would have occasionally we'd have like managers that would. Like come from in fact the manager I had came from the bingo world and didn't know anything about cinemas, um, <laughs> so had to like we had to teach him everything about the movies and it was very yeah. peculiar. Um, Two thousand and six, I was hold on. Uh, well, how old was I been? Oh yeah, okay. I was nineteen. Yeah, I was uh, twenty three. So I would have been working at that cinema. Yeah, I was working at the cinema. Um, I think I might have been. Working for that guy who ran bingo halls, and I might have been the assistant manager, and that chap never came to work. He just <laughs> scheduled scheduled all the shifts, so he only worked quiet shifts. Oh. So he ne- he wasn't he never worked Friday nights. He never worked Sundays. He worked mm. Saturday from ten till one, and then left <sighs> before it got busy. Um, God, and he I didn't hated work. shift work. He didn't work Wednesdays when they introduced the Orange Wednesday two-for-one offer that was nationwide. <laughs> yeah, so he just never that. worked any busy shift. And it was always me, and it was... There you go. So um, many good memories of the Orange two-for-one Wednesdays. Yeah. I just... I remember... I remember there were parts of that job that I really quite enjoyed, which was like... Because I came from front of house, mm. and I worked differently as a manager. Instead of being, like, locked away in my office just doing nothing for a busy shift, mm. I was out on the shop floor, and I was like... Right, we're running out of Coke. I'm going to go and change the Coke. We've run out of popcorn. I'm going to get the popcorn. Like, supporting my staff, and I felt quite pleased about that. Yeah. I felt like I'd found a way of doing the job, because otherwise there was nothing to do in that job. Anyway, uh, events <laughs> in the world. Um, a whale takes a dip in the River Thames in London. It swam all the way up um, to the... Uh, to the River Thames, which we don't get. I think it's happened once again since then. Um, yeah, it, every. I think a shark was also in there. I'm oh, not maybe sure. that was it. Yeah, um, Pluto is uh, is a sacrilege downgraded from a planet to a dwarf planet. Which they cucked uh, Pluto. Pluto gets cucked. <laughs> the woke NASA cucks Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> Google Woo. purchases YouTube for one point six five billion, which. Into the, like now that all podcasts except for us are on YouTube, I think that has just massively expanded what YouTube offers. Yeah, um, I know you don't use it for that, but you still use it for. I mean, I, I mean, I, I use it, I use it to learn how to do any DIY around the house. <laughs> YouTube, um, I use it to watch a whole bunch of podcasters every week. Yeah, um, I watch it for an awful lot of. Um, um, Oh, because I, I used to buy movies and TV shows on Google Play. Then they oh, shut down Google yeah. Play, so everything's on YouTube now. So I've got a bunch of things that I own on that I can watch on, mm. on YouTube. Anyway, and Steve Irwin was killed by a stingray. Um, in the world of music, uh, Lordy, the metal band Lordy, <laughs> win Eurovision. Um, Green Day's Boulevard of Broken Dreams wins record of the year at the Grammys. 
And uh, CBGB's in New York closes down uh, after a lengthy rent dispute. The top singles of the year, Crazy by Niles Barkley, Hips Don't Lie by Shakira. Now, that one has become, that's like passed into like, unlike a lot of songs, that one has passed into just such common parlance. Mm. That is the Shakira song that everyone talks about. Like, you know, when everyone says Shakira, Hips Don't Lie is like a joke everyone will make. Um, like, mm. she was on the stand recently at some court case, and someone said, oh, should have put her hips yeah. on the stand or something so, like that. Someone, you know? someone, so I've like been seeing everyone, that joke. Yeah. Everyone kind of, yeah, it's 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 really passed into common parlance. Mm. Um, Don't Feel Like Dancing by the Scissor Sisters. I used to really like the Scissor Sisters, and that's a good song. They were good. Uh, boys, we boys by The Ordinary Boys. Don't do it. The Ordinary Don't Boys. A man eater by Nelly Furtado. She's a man eater. It's the second um, best man eater song. I've probably said it before. It's the second best man eater song. Yeah, we looked at 2006 quite recently, and you made mm. all the same references in the Sorry. same order. I can't help um, it. Uh, uh, TV World Dexter airs the very first episode of Dexter. Um, really, in, I re- I remember buying the DVD and mm. thoroughly enjoying. It's cartoony in a lot of places, but <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying. Like I used to live, um, maybe at this time. No, no, it would have been a year later or whatever. I lived in uh, essentially a squat above a pub, um, mm. but there was no. I had no aerial, so I had no actual television. And streaming services did not exist in 2007 or whatever it was, 2006. So I had a TV, but it was just for playing DVDs. Yeah, yeah. It so. meant that I spent so much of my wage on DVDs just to have something <laughs> on all the time because otherwise you were your own thoughts. But I remember Dexter <laughs> Dexter, and, and some of the early seasons of The Wire, but Dexter was such like fun comfort viewing because it was dead easy you put it put it on when i'm eating my dinner or whatever and me lunch and things yeah. it was just a yeah a really interesting first series um the first episode of life on mars airs on bbc and the first episode of the it crowd i don't know if americans are gonna really oh both those kind of translate a little bit didn't they because iowadi's quite big in america well they both have they both had very remakes. very short-lived remakes but no 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 americans know both shows i i assume a little bit you assume because you I didn't assume. want to do any more research no. uh in the movie in the movie world the highest grossing movies of the year the pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest grosses over a billion dollars at the box Ooh. office the da vinci code 760 million dollars at the box office did you see that one no i read the book and that's enough it, yeah it just didn't it nearly had a bit of an indiana jonesy flavor to it that's why I, heard... I, I really like tom cruise but it just didn't tom hanks Tom Hanks, sorry. And um, McKellen's in it as well. So there was oh. a couple of scenes that were really good. Oh, um, that makes me want to watch it. How dare you? And, I, and the book's terrible. Around this time, I used to think they should... Some some movies, they should kind of tell us what the movie's really about. Like, <laughs> this one should have been called Forrest Gump and Amelie versus Magneto. <laughs> That's... <laughs> I would go and see that movie. <laughs> like, yeah. they, they, there was a, they tried to do a remake of The Fog. And yes. it had uh, Tom Welling from Smallville in it. And yeah. I wasn't interested. But if they'd called it Superboy versus Ghost Pirates, <laughs> I would have bought a ticket. Um, Ice Age The Meltdown is the number three movie of the year with $660 million. Casino Royale, $606 million. Nights at the Museum, uh, $574 million million dollars at the box office only two superhero movies of that year 
Mm. X-Men The Last Stand and Superman Returns. I didn't realise Superman Returns is out the same year. Yeah, mad. Mad. I don't think they competed at the box office, though. I think uh, that yeah. would have been... I think one of them is definitely the box office champion on that one. No, I don't. I'm saying I don't think they competed. Oh, in, sorry, I thought you, I, it was I not the time. Like there was, there'd be no need for you to put your one superhero movie up against another superhero movie in the same oh, six same month t- period. Would right? They? My bad. My bad. They just, so they just. I don't think that really happened. Mm. Um, in the world of Marvel comics, in the year 2006, it's 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 a mega year, really. Mm. Um, the X Men are still reeling. From the, the previous year, the events of House of M and Decimation, where millions of mutants were forcibly stripped of their powers and turned into humans by the evil Scarlet Witch Wonder. What a horrible thing to do to someone, turning them into a human. Now they've got anxiety <laughs> and bills to pay. Well, it led to a whole bunch of people dying and being permanently disabled. Oof. Like, the blob dies of a heart attack when he becomes human. Oh, God. Because he's only sustainable because of his mutant power. He's only held together through uh, uh, Scotch tape and cholesterol. Yeah. The X-Men also discover a dark secret that Professor X has been hiding from them for years. A hidden X-Men team that no one ever knew about, that all died, (laughs) and he covered it up. Um, Cyclops discovers as part of that his long-lost and forgotten brother, Vulcan, who begins carving a path of destruction and revenge through the X-Men and the alien Shi'ar Empire. We've got a bonus episode all about that on Patreon. It's called um, War of Kings, and it starts with that great story. Um, The Illuminati decide that the Hulk is too dangerous to live on Earth, so they forcibly exile him into the depths of space, an event which would kick off Planet Hulk and ultimately lead to World War Hulk. Big year 2006. The rest of the cosmos is consumed by the huge war against Annihilus and his annihilation wave from the negative zone, events that would eventually lead to the Guardians of the Galaxy being formed. Whilst Earth is wrapped up in its own problems, Tony Stark spearheads the Superhuman Registration Act, splitting the Avengers down the middle and kicking off the Civil War. By the end of 2006, Spider-Man has revealed his true identity to the world. Aunt May has been shot and killed by an assassin. Captain America is arrested for treason and murdered on the steps of the courthouse. Let's take a look behind the page uh, now as we delve into what this film could have been about. <laughs> that what, what Brian Single wanted this movie to be about, what some of the screenwriters ve- tried very hard to make the movie about, but ultimately what Fox said, that's not Magneto, and slapped aside. Um, and that's a Dark Phoenix saga, which is widely considered one of, if not the greatest Marvel story ever told um the involvement of chris clement and john byrne who were this dream team and on the x-men comics they collectively took the x-men which is one of the lowest selling comics that marvel were making and over their tenure mainly chris clement kind of um transformed it into an absolute powerhouse blockbuster that would get its own cartoon series and movie sets and the dark phoenix saga is this storyline that takes gene gray as kind of a background character mm. and transforms her into the most powerful hero, um, th- a Thor-level hero in terms yeah. of power. Radically 
transforms her personality as well. And then we get to this wonderful story of corruption um, and darkness that seeps in. The st- it, 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 why it's so highly regarded? The story's themes of identity and corruption and temptation um, and and the burden of power. They remain as relevant as ever when you read them now. They're big concepts in, in any kind of storytelling. But there was absolutely nothing in the world of superhero comics that was doing this level of sophistication in the 1970s. Chris Claremont's X-Men, and specifically this story, but also Days of Future Past that we've looked mm. at, they are res- directly responsible for... Increasing the level of sophistication in in comic books. They predate Alan Moore doing things on quirky British comics, right? They predate Frank Miller doing it. They predate any of this. It's it's not saying that they're perhaps as dark or even maybe as good or as readable as those things that came a decade later, but they raise the level of sophistication in a way that had never been seen before. The depth of character, like stories like The Godfather, mm. Empire Strikes Back, they were proving in the 70s that audiences loved this kind of depth of character. We see that to get today with with things like, you know, well, maybe not today, but this era, Breaking Bad, Game mm. of Thrones, that level of, of, of depth and shades of grey of a character. Jean Grey was being given a hugely sophisticated story in Dark Phoenix, and a huge depth was being added to her character that didn't exist before. She served, really, before this story... No important purpose in the team. Um, especially in the X-Men's early days, the character existed purely as a love interest for the group. Every mm. member of the original X-Men roster, including Professor X, has feelings for her at one point. She's a mother figure or she's a girlfriend-wife figure. She's there to provide emotional support and encouragement or she's there to be kind of like lusted after. And that's roughly it. This was a very key moment for female characters in in in, in comic books during the the silver and the bronze ages of, of comic books, which is from the fifties through to the the seventies eighties. Um, many Marvel teams had their obligatory female figure. Mm. The X Men had Marvel Girl Jean Grey, the Fantastic Four had Invisible Girl, the Avengers had the Wasp. They provided considerable support to the male-dominated teams, but they never excelled in the same way that the lead male stars could. Cyclops, Captain America, Mr. Fantastic, or whatever. But by the 1970s, more female characters were a part of the conversation, just in broader pop culture and in comic books. They never really took control of it, though. The, The Dark Phoenix saga changed the discourse by having a woman take the microphone and then blowing the roof off making the entire world the stage the 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 mightiest being in marvel comics was a woman Hmm. a normally obedient female character as had been depicted up until that point was finally let loose whether for good or for evil kind of doesn't really matter (laughs) like it's it's fun for the story that it's it's evil but it's just the fact that it's been that that female character been risen to such heights um, the Dark Phoenix saga did more for depictions of female heroes and villains with just a few issues than an entire decade of comic book continuity. After the first Phoenix story, Marvel would turn Carol Danvers into a superhero. 
She was a background character at the time. She was transformed into a superhero. She got her own series, Ms. Marvel. And after the Dark Phoenix saga concluded, we'd see the launch of brand new female-centered comic books like Spider-Woman and She-Hulk, putting female superheroes front and center in their own starring roles for the first time, all after the impact of... I mean, there was cultural things were happening as well, but also mm. it was after the impact of the Phoenix saga. Um, Clement and, and, and began when Chris Clement, the writer, and the artist Dave Cockburn wanted to vastly upgrade Jean Grey. And they came up with this idea of changing the costume and making her more dynamic. And let's stop calling her Marvel Girl. That sounds quite reductive. Yeah. And they came up with a new name, which was Phoenix, and changed the power set and everything. Chris Clement has said that their motivation was to create the X-Men's version of Thor. So Jean Grey becomes the first co- female cosmic level hero. Gotcha. That sounds about right. They too hoped that, like Thor, had been integrated into the Avengers lineup, despite the fact he is vastly above them in power set and, and kind of tied to this otherworldly set of, of, of powers and characters. Phoenix would become an effective and, and kind of immensely powerful member of, of the X Men. The, the, the character was not introduced with the Dark Phoenix story in mind. It was not planned out long in advance. It was not like a four-year storyline. They just went, let's change Jean Grey and let's let's like level her up. And then, over time, other minds came aboard and went, maybe this person is too powerful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she she's introduced and, and, and Dave Cochran then leaves the series and is replaced by another artist called John Byrne. Now, John Byrne and Chris Clement working together on X-Men is fantastic. They become the new Stanley and Jack Kirby, kind of on the Fantastic Four. But they also have these big, meaty, fundamental disagreements about what the, the characters and the stories should be about. Um, when, when Dave Cockrum is in the mix on, on the X-Men, Phoenix is to be the focus of the X-Men stories. Hmm. That's, what, that's what he wanted to be. John Byrne arrives... And he does not like the Phoenix. <laughs> um, he's just... Like, like, another thing that happened is Dave Cochran was pushing... Like, Nightcrawler is, is lined up as being the cool guy and the breakout star of the series. Because Dave Cochran likes Nightcrawler. John Byrne comes along and he goes, Nope, it's Wolverine. I don't know why only I can see it, but Wolverine's going to be the guy. So there's a lot of changes that happen when that, when that creative person, that second creative person changes out. John Byrne had very strong feelings about how powerful the Phoenix had become, feeling that she was really drawing too much focus in the book. According to Byrne, it had become a problem story-wise that Clement had kept writing the Phoenix stronger and stronger with every story, making her the dominant element of the X-Men book. Another writer by the name of Steve Grant then suggested that the solution Clement and Byrne should turn the Phoenix into a villain and then... You've got the justification. The villain should always be more powerful than the hero. So if you've created this incredibly powerful character, switch them to a villain, and you've got an incredible story, an incredible underdog story. John Byrne initially hated that idea, but (laughs) it meant that it was a solution. It would get the X-Men back on track in his mind and get rid of of Phoenix. Um, And with this mindset of turning the Phoenix into a cosmic villain... 
all the previous Phoenix stories started to look like they had been laying the groundwork for Jean Grey turning dark and being corrupted. The idea that Clement had accidentally been making her more and more powerful as he wrote the character now looked like it was a story arc where all power grows and then corrupts. (laughs) It was just a happy accident. There's a writer and broadcaster called Glenn Weldon, right? He's a pop culture critic. Um, he's written for, like, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and things like that. He's also written, uh, he's written a great book about Superman. It's a great book about, mm. like, how Superman fits into the world of pop culture. It's really worth a read. He's written one about Batman as well, but I've not read that one. Glenn okay. Weldon, check him out. Mm. And he wrote about the Dark Phoenix saga for NPR, the, the, the national broadcaster in, in America. Um, and what he has to say is, is really is a really great summation from a person that has like been looking at pop culture for like fifty years and writing about it. And he says, "The Dark Phoenix Saga, arguably superhero comics' most beloved storyline, full of angst and heartbreak and betrayals and tragedy and the kind of truly cosmic stakes that were still rare even for Marvel superhero comics." The Dark Phoenix held and holds a powerful grip on comic readers' hearts. It's been reprinted and revisited often. On and off, the four-color page, the 90s animated X-Men series, faithfully adapted the tragic tale, ensuring its narrative virus would invade a new generation of hosts. I love that. Brent Ratner's (laughs) messy 2006 movie watered it down to a thin, nearly unrecognizable gruel flecked across its 104-minute runtime. In his hammy fists, what was once a stirring saga became hopelessly (laughs) saggy. X-Men properties work to the extent they do by adopting a mutants-as-metaphor approach to storytelling. Our heroes are outcasts, freaks, feared by normal humans, which tease them up quite tidily to serve as symbolic stand-ins for any other you care to name. In the civil rights 1960s, the X-Men stories resonated most strongly as racial allegories. But the Dark Phoenix saga was written in the era of the Equal Rights Act and functions as a broad, unmissable feminist metaphor for the struggles of women to achieve and exert control over their own destinies. The Dark Phoenix saga ultimately revealed itself to be about Jean's realization that she's been the victim of manipulation by two men, the evil mastermind and the well-mentioned, sorry, the well-intentioned Professor Xavier. Mm. We learn that Jean's power isn't a result of her losing control. Rather, it stems from her rejecting patriarchal attempts to assume control over her by these two men who wish to channel her power for their own reasons. She rejects them and gets some satisfying, nasty revenge on Mastermind, while giving Professor X, Cyclops, and the rest of the X-Men a kind of cosmic hit-the-bricks. <laughs> Over-the-top, swing-for-the-fences cosmic storytelling, full of purple prose and turgid dialogue, and overwrought, gleefully melodramatic excess. In other words, it is quintessentially X-Men. There are some people that carry a big sack and they only <laughs> they only do something with it once a year. <laughs> Talking about the big man. Will Preston, however, hmm. better than Santa. Yes. Will Preston's heaving his big sack all over town twice a month and he's got it for us today. 
It's really bad on my back. Really bad. It's the Marvel versus Marvel mailbag. You can drop us a line, Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com. Tell us what you think of uh, every project that we're going to be um, tackling. We'll announce the next one at the end of the show. Um, you can also tweet to us at Marvel versus, or not, what was it, post to us, X to us. I don't know anymore. Um, not, I, I'm no longer on there, so it could be a completely different word. By the so, time I look at Will, it. what's in the mailbag this month? We've got so much to, to, to read. So many people have uh, uh, written Glowing about this. Glowing positive reviews, film. are they, Will? Glowing positive reviews of a film that made a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> but first off, we have David Fan, who said, Before the MCU, we really only had Superman, sorry, Spider-Man and X-Men and X2 and Spider-Man 2 uh, were my, third, my, my two favourite movies outside the MCU. So I was really excited for a third X-Men movie. Looking back on this movie kind of hurts for several reasons. Uh, Cyclops uh, 3... For for several reasons. Cyclops 3 movies in does absolutely nothing still. Uh, Juggernaut didn't need to be in this film at all. And Jean turning into Phoenix this way was more confusing than exciting. I forgot Rogue and Bobby were even in it till I remember... Me too! Yeah! Yeah! I thought they were done with the the second one. Yeah, absolutely. until i remember them fighting pyro but i did actually really like grammar as beast all in all i didn't feel like i wasted my money at movie theaters uh wasted my money at movie theaters wanted to wanted to love but it's uh just sort of let me down yeah. thank you david um yeah i think you're right there's a lot of people that don't need to be in this movie and yeah. then a lot of people that i completely forgot were in the movie <laughs> Uh, Holly Galpin said, Kelsey Grammer as Beast and Patrick Stewart as Professor X were the only two casting fan suggestions that I never heard anyone argue against. I hate Last Stand because it messed with the <laughs> Phoenix storyline, which is one of the best comic book stories of all time. Just tell the goddamn story. <laughs> Who was that, sorry? Holly Galpin. Well done, Holly. Yeah. yeah. Like, that was the... That was the big sentiment. It was just massively the big sentiment. It's not that people want you to do the space story and make it all about space and and be just, but you have to tell the key core parts of the story. Yeah, and you didn't. Yeah, I I tell you, no, I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell about my feelings later on. Dylan Dodd said, probably shock at Cyclops being killed, then going downhill from there. Uh, Kelsey Grammer was perfect, though. Shame we never got more of him. Also, I was disappointed Nightcrawler wasn't in it and found the action too over the top and, ironically, comic booky after the previous two films invented this subtlety. I suppose it was brave in retrospect how far they went with the killing and depowering, but I don't think it really worked. I liked the action scenes much mm. more in this movie than in, than the others. Yeah. Um... There's some good I, stuff. I we'll we'll get into it a little bit more. I I remember the killing was a lot in this movie. It was mm. too. It was it was unsettling. Yeah, is it, I think, it's quite bloodthirsty. One this one. I think this movie has the 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 goriest death <laughs> and the most unsettling death in in the history of superhero movies. We'll, we'll talk about that it. when we come yeah. to them. Will be. Oh god, I'm, I'm interested to know about the gory death. But yeah. It, uh, it's Dan the Co- man that it explodes, Will. <laughs> it's the only movie that shows a man exploding. Yeah, but he explodes into like fizziness, and it's he like explo- oh, it's 
disgusting. Anyway, it's not disgusting. It explodes. If it was juicy with bits flowing everywhere and blood against the wall, then yeah, that's disgusting. But turning into atoms, eh, it's, you can clean up. You don't have to get a cleaner in. Uh, Daniel Cook said, it was terrible. A series about segregation turned into a post-9-11 terrorist story. The whole thing made no sense. Killed off the most important characters simply to give Halle Berry Storm a reason to exist. And then curing Rogue, something again that was pointless. It felt like a film made for the conversion therapy crowd. Well, I, th- I, I particularly think that conversion therapy is 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 perhaps a theme. They don't handle it very well because I don't think they know. I don't think they want to take a side, and I don't mm. think they w- they know what they want to say. The comic yeah. books in general, um, up until perhaps big corporations started to get really involved, I think the comic books generally always know what they want to say. Yeah, nah, that makes sense. which is that the oppressed and those that are made to feel like other are the heroes <laughs> and the way they are treated is wrong i don't think this movie knows what it wants to say about something like conversion therapy it just kind of wants to push a button and present a sort of allegory if you present an yeah. allegory folks you have to know what side of that you're coming down on and this movie yep. does not yeah that, that absolutely shows Robert Chandler said, It was awful. One cancelled director, <laughs> Brent Ratner, who had no feeling for comic books, ruining the two very good X-Men films of another cancelled director, Brian Singer, who knew precisely how to make comic book movies work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we say that. Did he make... I mean, his Superman doesn't connect for people. I, I, yeah. I can enjoy it as much as I want. It did not connect. People did not get what they wanted from it. Um, I think that's... So Brian Singer worked as an assistant to Richard Donner. And mm. he viewed Richard Donner as like a father figure. Right, okay. And I think that that is the problem with Superman Returns, is that he has this reverence for the, for the 1970s Superman movie. Uh, and so what he did yeah, was yeah. make another 1970s Superman movie. And I don't think that is what the, the times perhaps called for. I, I think if you, if you re-released Superman from the 70s in the 2000s, people would go, I don't really want this. I think yeah, if, I get if that. you made the 1989 Batman movie today, people don't want it. That's not what they want from a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Um, new. They want a new twist. A new you know, tick. well, things just have to evolve and change. And yeah, that's what mm. I think happened there. But I do think he, he certainly has a pretty decent handle on on like certainly X, I don't. I, I never rate X, the first X Men movie that highly. Mm. X Men Two's good, and um, what's the next one he did? Days of Future Past. Yeah, it's okay. It's not. I great. liked it. Yeah, hey, everyone although does. Retros- although in retrospect, after the MCU movies, it, it, going back to that is like it does feel like a step down. Does feel like a massive yeah. step down. Anyway. Uh, next letter, Zach Spajit said, It's a reasonably enjoyable comic book action movie that suffered from having to follow not only X-Men 1 and 2, but also Spider-Man 1 and 2, Blade 1 and 2, and Batman Begins, which had contributed to absolutely changing the game. In retrospect, it fares even worse as just two years later we'd have Iron Man and the Dark Knight kicking further revolutions in comic book cinema. So in the midst of all that, it's just utterly mediocre by comparison. However, it's still better than all the X-Men prequels, except Apocalypse, which is an underrated masterpiece. Is he? Is that, a, is that like a running joke or something? Or is he just I don't think genuinely... it's a running joke. I, I think okay. that's just him having... He having enjoys a, having a, yeah. that movie. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, I, hey, I remember seeing it in the cinema. 
Didn't like it that much. I'm looking forward to talking about it on this show. Uh, Melissa Lauren said, Sue, X-Men Last Stand. I remember being really excited about this movie coming out after the hint at the end of X-Men 2 about the Phoenix. The Phoenix effect in X2 actually looked pretty cool. So I expected a spectacular looking Phoenix in the next one. Tough luck. You're not getting it, Melissa. Yeah, you've heard what the writers said. How dare you even want things? Then, oh, what we got. I wasn't able to see it in the theatre. Can't remember exactly why. Maybe because I was working in Japan then. And it just seemed too difficult to navigate going to the theatre there. So I did something I'm not proud of and downloaded on my laptop. Boo. You you can't boo William Preston. Uh, 50% of this podcast boos you. The other half sits by in the corner with a look of guilt on his own face. (laughs) I feel like I received a just punishment for doing so. What did they do to Jean? Instead of a fascinating movie adaptation of the incredible story about her becoming one, one with a fiery cosmic being... This was a story about someone who belonged in an insane asylum. And the look of the Phoenix effect looked like a sad knockoff version akin to having McDonald's at home. I should should, should say something nice, though. The one thing I remember uh, that I liked about this movie is when Magneto approaches a bunch of cars and smirks after a lady inside her car locks the door. That was funny. I agree agree with that as as well. I, 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 I like that little touch. Everything else was dumb. I didn't like Juggernaut either. I guess I could say a bunch more about what I don't like about it, but I'm already boring myself and would rather hear you guys talk about it. Good luck with this one. Thanks, Melissa. We're going to need it. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Gisby said, Some of the filmmaking is really inventive for a mid-2000s comic book movie and impactful. Say what you want about how stupid levitating the Golden Gate Bridge is, it stays with you. There are a few standout roles. The usual Stuart McKellen, Jackman, Triumvirt, Anna Paquin is, is exceptional. And Kelsey Grammer was a and perfect she's not, she's not exceptional. I, she's yeah. not exceptional. Yeah. I she's think she's there. done better she's elsewhere. She's fine. She's a bit. Uh, I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, mean, I read about her researching this and curious what else she did. I've never seen her in anything else, but apparently she's done some really good stuff. She does not come off cross well in these films, I'm afraid. No. And plus, the character of Rogue. I mean, all we'll I have to do is look at the uh, '90s cartoon. It's like different, different, different characters different, anyway. different different <laughs> just different in any way the whole thing is let down by an overall lack of cohesiveness so that it ends up being just a bunch of stuff that happened because <laughs> they took two scripts that don't belong together and they took them to a dodgy like car garage yeah. and they nah, welded yeah, them yeah, together yeah. god there's two front ends uh phoenix phil morley said on the plus side it's the first movie to give us proper big marvel comic style team-based superpower battles very the, very true that very is a highlight of this that's movie phil what, yeah what i've said the danger in opening scene and the end battle also i love annoying film twitter types about the fact that christopher nolan totally stole the last seconds of inception's ambiguous movement trick from the last second of this movie <laughs> on the negative side pretty much everything else well hang on no because we don't know what happens to the movement thing at the end of inception whereas we definitely see it in this one it's a similar kind of thing though we're looking at we're looking for movement or lack of movement on something or you know anyway on the negative side pretty much everything else though to be honest the fox the fox men movies have 
mostly felt like a wasted opportunity yes. to be. So the last stand doesn't offend me as much as it meant as it does many others. Yeah. It David, has, Nat- it's just oh, this this and Wolverine. Maybe I judged the the other sequels too harshly, but they just cast such a dark shadow over everything else. Yeah. Like it's... like first class and days and apocalypse. I just meh. It really does. It really does, mate. David Knapp said, Well, now I know how Cordelia in King Lear felt. Only where she hadn't the words to express her love, I can't find those to describe the crushing disappointment <laughs> which was X-Men last time. <laughs> Jesus, do you know that? Do you know that? He's, Lear has to choose the whole thing, battle between his daughters. Is it is a Shakespeare two, thing? Yeah. He's yeah. got these two genuinely awful daughters, but they kiss his ass. And so he's like, oh, they love me. And then he speaks to Cordelia, who's the only genuine child he has. And she's like, I haven't, I literally haven't got the words to express how much I love you. And he says, that sucks. You need to say (laughs) nice things about me. I'm going to judge you. What an interesting (laughs) reference, David. That's very, very high up. We Merrily Marvelites were riding a cinematic high in the mid-noughties. Blade 1 and 2, X-Men 1 and 2, Spider-Man 1 and 2 had set a collective high bar of cinematic delight. And I like Daredevil, Hulk and Fantastic Four. Fight me. Perhaps Blade Trinity, enjoyable but light fare compared to its predecessors, should have been a warning. An omen. <laughs> Perhaps Brian Singer jumping ship to make the audience splitting Superman store. Uh, Superman... Returns should have given us... An Superman inkling. stalks. He's Superman making a stalks. joke about how oh. he spies on Lois Lane. Yeah, I remember this reference now. I remember it. Uh, warning signs to be... Warning signs... Sorry. <clears throat> warning signs ignored. For last for three long years, my imagination run a mock picturing what X-Men 3 could be. Anything less than epic wouldn't do. And in my youthful naivety, I failed to attribute that the director who messed up Red Dragon could take the superlative building blocks put in place and smash them like a toddler raising their wooden block tower to the ground. Red Dragon's a really bad movie, yeah. Red Dragon, there's only sections of that that work because they're just doing direct a copy of the book but overall it feels like a half-hearted apology for hannibal it's no manhunt that's for it's certain man oh yeah it's good but i didn't like the way they ended it in manhunt it's the only thing i don't like about that film anyway it's great it's a good film anyway, the only apt analogy i can think of is thorpe park's detonator <laughs> the prior x-men films raised us up 35 meters in the air and there we sat for three long years then last stand flipped the switch and left us at gravity's merciless whim (laughs) (laughs) this is marvel spawn this is marvel's weekend at bernie's (laughs) 2 disappointing and embarrassing and inept nobody sets out to make a bad film but boy did these guys succeed beyond all imaginings Thank you, Dave Knapp. Uh, Will, is that the best letter we've ever had? That's that. That's a, guys. You, you really got to ru- up your games. That was <laughs> that was a pleasure to read that Man. letter. Ooh, finally, Peter J. Peter J's got a tough hack to follow. Peter J said, "So if you don't know, oh God, he's going to like this movie. Of course, he he's does. Gonna, he likes Dogs in Space." <laughs> Dogs in Space! It's one of his top movies of all time. He's going to love this movie. I love a movie that's a piping hot mess. 
<laughs> I love a movie that's a mental vanity project or made on a budget of $67. So why don't I like The Last Stand? Basic- plot twist. <laughs> mm, plot twist there. I love that. He led us down the garden path there. Basically, I don't go into movies like this with a it's so bad, it's good, or this is a vanity project, or this is a low-budget knockoff vibe. I go in thinking it'll have the hallmarks of being an actual film. And then I get this. Whatever this is, look, I like the central ideas, the cure, then the weaponizing of the cure, the ideas of being different is okay, all that I like. But then we get introduced to a shed load of new characters and they are only all only there to give us one throwaway gag or action scene. Multiple That's bands. so true. Yeah, a favorite of mine is a six second gag. Juggernaut, a 22-second action scene. Arclight, eight seconds of convenient plastic gun destroying, and on and on. None of them have any sort of character development, just this sloppy one-shot use. But reducing the Phoenix saga to Jean Grey standing in the background all all pouty-like... That's just a waste. Everyone needs to go back and listen to you take us through the Phoenix Saga properly because it deserves better than this film gives us. I could go on, talk about Angel and Professor X being a dick and Magneto's depowerment and last words, etc. But I won't. The movie looks good. The CGI, the stunts and the action. But for me, it just lacked anything that the first two movies had worked to set up. Is it the worst superhero movie? No, that's probably Steel. As uh-huh. always, you keep on giving us these great episodes. So even though this is not a favourite of mine, I am looking forward to being taken on the MVM journey through this film. Keep up the great work, gents. Thank you once again, Peter J. Um, and Peter J. David Fan. These guys make incredible, credible contributions to our community here. And you can do the same over on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. It's a great way of getting in touch with us, finding out yeah. what we're doing, checking out bonus content, but also tipping me and Will and, and, and putting some cash money on the table to help this podcast keep going. Big shout out to the, the crew that keep the wheels turning, the world-class wrecking crew, the top supporters of this podcast, Peter J., Brandon Schmigilski, Basta Beer, Sam Bindi, Supi, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, Zubair Q, and David Fan. A tip of the hat to you folks for keeping us uh, on the air. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Will, we're having a hell of a year. <laughs> the best. On Patreon, check this out. The year so far, what we do on Patreon, um, you know, it's a way for you to support us, but we support you. We create incredible bonus content for you guys to get your hands on, to get in your ears. Um, we do deep dive, full length bonus deep dives, right? Into mm. amazing Marvel stories that have not been adapted yet or haven't been adapted properly yet. Um, and we release those every month for the, the, the people that support us. Um, this year, we have delved into with special deep dive episodes onto the Kang Dynasty, like three years before they make it a movie. Maximum Carnage. We looked at um, Wakanda Doom War. Do you remember that one? Oh god, yeah, that was good. That was um, good. For our for our anniversary month, we looked at Amalgam Comics when Marvel <laughs> and DC merged universes and we got we got Wolverine and Batman coming together to make Dark Claw and we got Captain America and Superman creating the Super Soldier and Iron Man and Green Lantern creating the Green Lantern. That was a fun episode. 
Uh, we've got our live show. This year's live show. The video is up on there. Um, we got the uh, War of Kings um, between the Inhumans and the Shi'ar with the Guardians of the Galaxy in the middle. We had the sequel to Spider-Verse, which is called Spider-Geddon. Um, we had Secret Invasion. That was one of the best. Mm. And then we topped that with Infinity Gauntlet, which is another one of the best. And then we topped that maybe again with The Ultimates. I mean, Will, just reflect, if you can, on this year of bonus deep dives. I mean, I know Infinity Gauntlet was one of your favorites. I know Secret Invasion was one of your favorites. I know we had tons of fun with Amalgam Comics and Kang Dynasty was cool as well, right? It's been it's been, I think, our best year on Patreon yet. Oh, it it has. We I mean, it's a hard one to be, especially some of the earlier stuff we've done in earlier years, but yeah, we've really really done some amazing ones. I mean, even for just like Secret Invasion and Kang Dynasty alone, and not, not not to mention Infinity Gauntlet, which is yeah. so amazing for someone like me to go to and go, oh my god, this is what could have happened in the film. This is uh, th- th- this is how it was different in the comic. Oh god, it was good, so good, a mega year. And you guys, if you get in at the ten pound tier, the VIEP tier. You don't just get to listen to that month's episode, whatever that month's bonus deep dive is. You can listen to anything and everything we've ever done at that tier. You sign up this month and you'll be able to listen to the Kang Dynasty, to Infinity Gauntlet. You have to listen to Secret Invasion or go back to something from from years ago that we've done. Um, it's a it's a great way to get access to the real, truly great Marvel moments that we get to cover. Um, and this month, it's Spooktober, folks. So we've got a fitting tale for Spooktober, packed with magic, demons, and ghosts. It's Doctor Strange and Ghost Rider versus Mephisto in a story called Damnation. I know, Will, that you love when we get to delve into the magic side, oh, the mystic yeah. side of the Marvel Universe. Mephisto literally creates a hell on earth. Um, in Las Vegas, and it's to Doctor Strange, Ghost Rider, and a whole bunch of other mystic characters, including the return of the Midnight Suns um, to fight for the souls of the destroyed Las Vegas. That one is available this month on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. We uh, we put loads of bonus episodes up there. Every month, on the first of the month, me and Will also release Obscure Marvel, our little spin-off show a little spin-off mini-show where me and Will <laughs> take a look at the most ridiculous characters and most ridiculous stories in the history of the Marvel Universe. This month, Frogman versus the White Rabbit. And Will, I'd like you to <laughs> reflect, if you can, on the story of Frogman, the, new, the newest superhero, taken on the White Rabbit. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I found Leapfrog funny enough. But then this happens. But then this happens, and then we get what appears to be a mock, a mock of a Batman villain in the best possible way, and it's just brilliant. It's hilarious. Spider Man's barely in this. It's a Spider Man story. He's barely in it. Um, <laughs> it's a mad one. That's what everybody gets. And every month we release for everyone that you know. You can subscribe at just a very, 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 very basic three pound a month tier. That doesn't even really pay for a coffee these days. It certainly doesn't pay for a pint anymore. If you just contribute that every month to this podcast to help keep us on the air, to help pay me and Will for all the work we do putting into these episodes, 
then uh, in exchange for that, just very basic contribution, you'll get access to Obscure Marvel every month. You can go back and listen to all the fun mini-episodes that we've done. Um, that's for you guys. There's also other tiers where you can get early access to uh, to every episode that we do three days in advance. It's all available. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. On the other side of this break, me and Will with the patented deep dive that I never thought I'd ever have to do. <laughs> X-Men Last Stand.